Hello and welcome back to our daily devotional podcast. Today we want to look at Acts 15. Acts 15 is where the council at Jerusalem made a decision as to what laws or what rules to impose upon Gentile converts. <clears throat> and it's a very important lesson for us. Question to us then as we read this passage, and as we continue the rest of the day in thinking of what God is teaching us, question is, how do we minimize all the Christian uh, practices so that we become welcoming to outsiders? This was the question that was posed to the church in Jerusalem. How do we make ourselves less onerous, our requirements of Gentiles less onerous so that we can allow them to come to know God? And they came up with four rules. And we'll look at these four rules. We'll also look at what other efforts they took to draw, to allow Gentiles to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. So let's look at Acts chapter 15 now. Let us pray. Father, speak your truths to us. Inspire us with your Holy Spirit that even as we pass, continue the day, that God, you will speak to us deep into our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 15, we'll read from verse 1 to verse 35. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the, the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul, as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with these words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. 
Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles to turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from gener ancient generations Moses had had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers, whereof the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Unlike in Acts chapter 10, these new believers, Gentile believers, had probably never been to synagogues. They were unfamiliar with the teachings of Moses. and They were unfamiliar with the customs of the Jews. And so there obviously would be, have been great confusion, much conflict and a lot of discomfort. Imagine Gentiles now entering whatever it is, the church, the synagogue, totally unschooled in the ways of the church, unschooled in the ways of Judaism. And then the traditional Jews who were strict in keeping the laws of God. And that was part of their lives. Imagine the clash of these two civilizations. It must have caused a lot of problems. I remember a story that I was told by a friend who was counselling prisoners, ex-prisoners. One day he brought a group of ex-prisoners into the church. And as the offering bag was being passed around, one of them looked quizzically at the bag, stuck his money into the bag, pulled out a wad of notes and said, Wow, got money inside, what is this? It brought to mind the reality that when people from outside the church come in, they notice a lot of practices in the church that baffle them, that really puzzling. And one of the things then is that there will be a clash of us trying to keep tradition and of welcoming newcomers who have no idea what the traditions are. And even despite our teaching them, we we'll find these traditions far too onerous. And often then they wonder what is conversion all about if it is following a whole set of rules. 
And this was exactly what was happening to the early church. The Gentiles kind of invaded in some places, invaded the church because there were lots of them. And these were not proselytes. These were not people who were familiar with the customs of the Jews. They just came in and invaded. And the traditional Jews were very, very disheartened by it. And so some, of course, insisted that the Gentiles first be circumcised. And in quite requiring them to be circumcised didn't only just mean the act of circumcision, but it also meant keeping the laws of Moses, as is mentioned in verse 5, that some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so the traditionalists or the Jews, Jewish converts insisted that the Gentiles keep the law of Moses. But here was the dilemma. How could they require Gentiles to follow the law of Moses when Paul, in fact, and Peter also had preached, Paul in Acts chapter 14 earlier had told the believers that Jesus came to bring forgiveness of sins and to free them from the acts that neither they, neither the Jews nor anyone else could keep as far as the law of Moses went. Basically, the gospel was to free people from all from the slavery of the laws of Moses, or in our case sometimes, the laws of the church. And they had to find a solution. And so after Peter had recited the, the, the whole issue, and then uh, Paul and Barnabas related um, how, th how through the journeys the Gentiles had come to God, James then, probably James was the head then, made a decree. And in verse 19 it says, In my judgment, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. Now this then is a dilemma. We don't know why these four abstentions, abs, abstinations were selected. Were they a summary of laws of Moses and of Leviticus? What were they for and why these four? Surely there were other more important um, commands. I mean, sure, sexual morality, and it was quite broad. It included fornication, adultery, but also included things like incest, which was very clear in Leviticus. But if it was just said uh, sexual immorality, one wouldn't have thought of things like incest, certainly not the Gentiles. It wasn't a problem for them. And even if it was a problem for them, it wasn't made clear that that was wrong. And what about blood? Leviticus tells us about blood eating animals and drinking the blood of animals, and that the blood is the life of animals. But surely there were other problems too that were more serious or strangulation, strangled animals. Well, strangled animals had to do with blood also because if an animal was strangled, the blood would remain in the animal. And the ritual killing of um, animals was that its throat would be slit so that all the blood would drain off onto the ground and it would not remain and coagulate in the animal where one would unwittingly eat it. And so wasn't that a repeat? Strangled animals and drinking of blood. Why 
dietary problems. Of course, idolatry was common. Idolatry is understandable. But surely this couldn't have been just a summary, just picking the best of four Levitical rules. Because even if it was one Levitical rule, it would still be a problem because Christianity, Christ set people free. So what could it be? Some have suggested that it might have been table fellowship. Um, that if the Gentiles would eat with Jews, and the Gentiles then ate um, animals with blood, that would be abominable to the Jews. But there were so many other dietary requirements that had nothing to do with blood that was still an abomination. What about eating pork? What about eating animals with cloven hooves? Surely these would also have been very offensive to the Jews, and so why choose just blood? And so commentators and scholars through the centuries have debated this, and if you are keen or interested in these debates, then well, either Google or come to me and I could lend you some books on this. But I think one of the theories then that we find that may suit this, may fit this context most, is that James was not thinking of a summary or a choice of four things in Leviticus. It was nothing to do with the Mosaic laws, but rather it had to do with the idolatrous practices of the Gentiles in those days. There's some of these practices that would bring them back to syncretism, would bring them back to thinking of their old practices and therefore lead them to the superstitions through their reminding them of their idol worship, of their demon worship. And so it could very likely be that these four were just tailor-made for this group of Gentiles in Antioch and for this time period. Because many of the Gentiles have come from pagan worship. Of course, sexual morality, immorality could have been just plain lust, or could also have been temple rituals, which was very common. Uh, temple prostitutes, where men would have sex with prost temple prostitutes as a sign of fertility for the land, of prosperity for the land. And then perhaps blood sacrifices. Or taking of blood could well have been um, murder, of killing, of hurting people grievously and shedding blood. That was why it was prohibited. Strangulation could very well have been the way, and many scholars believe that was the way, um, ritual killing of animals, and whether for sacrifice or for eating, was done, that animals were was, was strangled to be eaten. And this would have brought many memories, associations back with their former practices. It is highly possible then that rather than picking the best four of Levitical rules, James was thinking of what would Gentile believers associate with their former way of worship and helping them to get out of that. You see, the basic rule of the Council in Jerusalem was this, that they would not Way put a greater yoke in verse 10. Paul and Barnabas said, Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We were saved by grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then, in verse 19, James says, We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should place as few, if not, if nothing, no obstacles before the Gentiles, before the outsiders, nothing that would stop them from coming to God. What a wonderful, what an important principle it is for our church to bear in mind. Because so many, so many things exist in our church that perhaps are barriers to outsiders coming to God or even to those who have been converted outside, whether in their homes or in prisons or in the workplace, who then come to look for a church and the church is not prepared because the church has too many taboos for them. And so we have to ask ourselves, if our basic principle is this, that we will have no obstacles to people coming to worship with us, what do we have to dismantle? What do we have to explain to people that it is not necessary, that it is fine if they don't observe, as long as they come to us and we worship together, we come and be drawn to God together. I will give very few, I will not give any suggestions today, but I want you to think about it then. And if there were rules, these rules would be to keep them away from things that lure them back to their old lifestyle. What would draw them away from Christ and draw them back to their old lifestyle? And maybe these will be the only prohibitions, a desire for them to leave their lifestyle and to come back to God, what would those be at all? And sometimes it may have to be tailor-made, it may have to be explained to the people. For example, Methodists don't drink, although many of us privately drink. And the reason for that was, in the days of prohibition, in the days of Wesley, people often got drunk, and they were so drunk that they destroyed their families. Not that they were just drunk, they were alcoholics, and they would destroy their families, they would walk out from God. And it was a major cause of backsliding. Some time ago, the pastors discussed whether we should maintain this prohibition on drink. And I think my reason for maintaining that, which I don't keep very strictly, but my reason then was that I was working among prisoners. And I realized then that prisoners who took the first drink and then the second drink often return to the life of addictions, drink of drugs. We felt then that it was good that they not be encouraged to drink and that when we had fellowship with them, then we would not. But there are lots of people who drink socially who don't get addicted to drink. And I don't think that should be a barrier to them. Likewise, many other taboos in the church. And I would ask you to think what these taboos are and what we could stop insisting that people follow in order to come to church. I may have told you this story before, but it was about the pour outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a church that I attended when I was studying in the US called The Rock. In this church, used to be a flourishing church. It was a very upper middle class church and was doing extremely well. And then there were demographic changes, uh, 
uh, industrialization and all that, and many of the richer people left the, the city and moved to the suburbs. Over time, the church began to diminish and it became very small. And a new group of people came, the Hispanics, who were very different from the upper middle class people. And so there was so much friction in that church. It began, of course, with things that we might find trivial, but were important to the believers of that time. For example, the middle class, white middle class congregation believed that to worship God, one had to be quiet, one had to be contemplative, one had to be staid, and always very reverential and very respectful of God. And so in their worship, everything was silence, the whole, there was the liturgy, it was a traditional worship, everything was very reverential. The Hispanics, on the other hand, saw Christianity, spirituality as friendship and fellowship, and so they were loud and boisterous. Whenever they met each Sunday, they would be greeting each other loudly and laughing and joking and hugging and loving each other. Problem then was that while the whites were quietly worshipping God, the Hispanics were outside making a whole lot of noise, not that they were inconsiderate or disrespectful of God, but they believed that that was spirituality. And that was the first of the conflicts. The second one seemed almost trivial until we realized what was ingrained in them. To the whites, cleanliness was next to holiness, and they really believed it. When they were in charge of the church, the church, the toilets, for example, were kept sparkling clean. One could make a bedroom, one could sleep in the toilet because it was so clean, well-maintained. Hispanics saw it the other way, that the toilet was for crap. Toilets were for, well, were meant to be dirty. I mean, why, why on earth would you keep a toilet, the dirtiest place in the house, clean at all? And so often in church, they would just leave things be. Um, not that they were terribly inconsiderate, but... Cleanliness was not a top priority. And so the toilets were wet, or they were not clean. And that brought so much friction to the church. At the end of the day, the two congregations came together and wanted to separate. And, and so they called for a meeting and each group came together with a whole list of complaints against the other. But just as the first leader of the first group stood up, the Holy Spirit poured upon them. And instead of reading out the list of faults of the other side, he fell on his knees and cried and said to the, the other side, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry for breaking our fellowship. Please forgive me. And he, as he said that, the Spirit just touched the hearts of everyone in that group. and They all fell on their knees, pleading with each other for forgiveness asking God that they would be one again. It was several years later when I was studying in Kentucky that I visited that church. It was such a joy because there I went for first the church prayer meeting. And they were praying in English and Hispanic and any language that was familiar, com common for them, they prayed. There were the whites in the coats, ties and bow ties. There were the Hispanics, the bag lady who brought her, all her belongings there, having not bathed for some time, and they were worshipping together. Attended the church on Sunday, it was a wonderful experience too. 
Some of the things were hilarious. For example, they had offering on the altar, and I asked them, why, why ask the pastor, why do you have offering on the altar? And he said, well, the reason is, well, it looks like the reason we explain to people is that this is an offering and place it on the altar before God. But actually, the reason was this. When the bags were pa- passed around, by the time it reached the front again, everyone in the congregation, some people in the congregation would have helped themselves to the money and often the bags came back empty. And so having them place the money on the altar was so that everyone could see and no one would dare to steal. But this reflected something, the great truth, that this was a church that once was an upper middle class or upper class church that had now become a place of various people, a very beautiful mix. Sure, they had problems. They had theft, they had bad behaviour, they had addiction, they had drugs being sold at the door of the church. But none of these was more important than the fellowship that the Christians had of different classes. I was so impressed because this was the church that changed the laws in the country during one very bad winter. Homeless people needed to find shelter and they went into the church. But there was a a municipal law that prohibited the church from being a shelter for the homeless. It had to do with lodgings and, and all that. And so the church was ordered to shut its doors to the homeless. And then one day, a man died from cold at the steps of the church. This created a huge uproar and the city um, government had to change the law. The church was once again opened for the homeless to spend their winters. Here was a church so transformed by the Holy Spirit that they held no longer held tightly to the rules or to the practices or the customs that they were so used to. But that allowed them to embrace, to open up to people of all kinds because they wanted everyone to have a chance to grow in the Lord and to know the Lord. And just then to bring a second point in this, that after the apostles had written the letter, they sent the best, they sent two of the best people to deliver the letter. And they chose Basabas and Silas. Two men who were themselves prophets, who were filled with the Spirit, who went there to encourage the brothers as well. This shows how important the church, the Gentiles in Antioch were. This reminds us that the newcomers to our church, the people from outside of the church who come in, are precious to God and must be precious to us as well. And we must find different ways, various ways, creative ways, to minister to people. And you know, some of the times when things change, like this COVID thing, and we now have more technology, and suddenly we learn from technology, it's important for us because we learn different ways, more effective ways, creative ways of ministering. One of the things that came out from this was my podcast. But what came before that was actually a video uh, devotions when I did in Barker Road. But I learned this from necessity because I could no longer contact, connect with the members and I so desperately wanted to. So that began first the videos and now the podcast. But recently I learned something else. 
There was a very a close friend of mine whose wife was very, very ill. And I longed so often to visit her, but because of her weak this her, her weakness and and because of COVID, I couldn't visit. And I wasn't very good in texting. Um, I didn't know what what to say often. And so one day and so we didn't get in touch for quite a bit. One day I texted the husband and asked him, is your wife still conscious? And he said, yeah, she is conscious. Why don't you record a prayer for her and play, I'll play it for her? And suddenly it struck me, I never thought of that, but I love praying, but not through text. And so I began by recording a prayer for her. And I've been doing that several times now since. And it's been very good because I've managed to connect with her even though we are far apart. You see, I'm not good on the phone either. I hate it when I call someone and then we are, there's long silence. But here I just have to record a prayer and leave it, give them the time and the space to play if they wish to and not if they don't. But I just found another way of ministry and that was so thrilling to me. I think that when people are important to you, whether they're new converts, whether they're people from outside, then think creatively and out of the box. But what we need to do is to find ways of reaching out to them. The church in Antioch took much time to debate this. Not the church, in Jerusalem took much time to debate on this. They found a solution. They wrote to the church but didn't just send a letter. They sent, together with Paul and Barnabas, two of their best men to encourage their church. May we be like them also, so filled with the Holy Spirit that we will tear down walls that we can reach out to the last of the believers from outside and then give of our very best for them. Let us pray. Father, once again we ask, pour your Holy Spirit upon each of us, so fill us of your Holy Spirit Immerse us in your spirit, Lord, that we, our lives will be changed, that our priorities will change, that no longer will we keep to the customs and the practices that we're so accustomed to, but that we will open ourselves up for different people to receive all sorts of people to come, just that they may have a chance to know you and to grow in you. Teach us then how to tear down walls, and how to build bridges. Teach us how to find new ways, whether through technology, whether through creative ways of reaching out. Father, most of all, speak to us and guide us, that as a church we may truly be one that loves you deeply and longs for your heart, the people who are outside the church we may welcome them in whatever means we have. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks once again and uh, God, God bless you and goodbye.